We are picking up where last week left off. We actually are going to bounce back and grab an extra paragraph that uh, James didn't get to last week. Um, big shout out to the rest of the preaching team for their three-week series, uh, mini-series. Uh, I decided to maybe do my own mini-series this week since I maybe didn't get the invite to that one. Um, so that's exciting. Actually, Jackie picked up on that joke this week and gave me a pretty hard time about it through some mediocre, intentionally mediocre graphics design. Um, Well-deserved. On that note also, big shout out to James and Jackie and Houston on our staff as well while Zach is out. They've been doing an awesome job uh, picking up some extra responsibilities, leading our church in some ways. And so if you see them, grab them, give them a high five or a hug or whatever you're doing these days, um, and just thank them for what they're doing. They're doing a great job while Zach is out and, and are worthy of commendation in that. Okay, well, if you look over at our wall here, every week we point you over to gospel community mission. And the word for gospel um, actually comes from a Greek word, right? It comes from a word that means good news. The gospel at its core is news. It's a proclamation of something that has happened. We've got the slide. It's great. Click on the trigger there, Alex. I love it. And what I'm getting at here is that there is a category of news where hearing it profoundly changes your life, how you live, what reality means. So what is this not? There's been maybe some news around a certain football player this week, and there's been a lot of contention around it. I'm going to go ahead and say that that does very little to change any of our lives. Maybe go back a little bit farther. Uh, uh, Last Thursday, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook is now meta. This one's a little more interesting. Here's some of the things that Zuckerberg said in that announcement. He said, The metaverse will feel like a hybrid of today's online experiences, sometimes expanded into three dimensions or projected into the physical world. It will let you share immersive experiences with other people, even when you can't be together. Probably some cool things there, probably some things that require some Christian discernment. That's not the point of today's sermon, but what I'm getting at with this is that he's making a pronouncement that he says is going to change your life. A more classic example is when the news of victory in Europe reached the United States during World War II. That meant that in America we returned from years of rationing and putting all of our efforts into winning this war back into normal life. And again, my point with this is that there is a type of news that, because of its truth, because of its impact, forever changes your life. And ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection, it means that the realization of God's promises to redeem his people and have a final answer to the problem of sin and death, that that news is with us. And that's where it amazes me the, the, the degree to which the Gospels emphasize the historical context of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing all of these pointers back to actual things uh, in the context at the time there. It's not something that just happened um, out in nowhere in space, but in a particular place. The church has always understood this importance. We say Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate when we recite the creeds. The events leading up to Jesus' death happened at a time and a place. In the Last Supper on a Thursday before Passover, Jesus' betrayal and trial that night, his sentencing under Pilate and crucifixion on Friday, 
And now as we move into the events of Friday evening and Saturday and Easter Sunday, these are events that took place at a time and a place in history. What I hope we see today is that real events create real hope. So let's pray. So God, we pray that you would come and fill this place and revive our hearts to know your grace. From our slumber, make us rise that we may know the risen Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Let's look back at verse 57. Um, Last week, James pointed out how in um, the time of Jesus, Jesus dying right around three o'clock, that's the time when the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. And that points us um, to who Jesus is, dying for our sins. A, A further point is that Jesus, it was necessary for him to be buried on that day, for him to fulfill his prophecy Uh, to be raised on the third day. So here we pick this up. It was evening that day, and there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Now, in our course of going through Matthew, we've seen some of the major players and the characters, right? We have Jesus, and we see the chief priests and the Pharisees. Um, We have Mary Magdalene here. And notably absent is the 12 disciples. They have, you know, all kind of gone away at this point. And it's someone else, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who comes along. Now, it's worth noting Romans really didn't have any concern for the bodies of the crucified. Aside from Joseph's intervention, Jesus probably ends up, you know, thrown in a mass grave or something like that. But along comes a man, along comes a rich man. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53. We've looked at this in the past few weeks where it says that this suffering servant would be with a rich man in his death. And so for this Jesus from Galilee, down in Jerusalem, without friends, without money, to then here have along comes a rich man. As the details and fulfillments of prophecy stack on each other, it's not a coincidence that a wealthy, previously secret follower of Jesus had a tomb nearby and stepped in here to uh, care for Jesus' body. The Gospel of John tells us that Joseph had been a disciple secretly, And Mark says that he gathered up the courage to go see Pilate. I think this is really profound, right? We think about Joseph, and he's, uh, we learn elsewhere from the Sanhedrin. Um, You can imagine he'd have a lot to be afraid of here. He's going to Pilate. Pilate's kind of fed up with the Jewish leaders at this point, I think it's safe to say. And Joseph's going to ask for a favor. Joseph's also a part of the Sanhedrin, and he's about to be very publicly associated with Jesus. But I think the amazing thing here is that Joseph's act of devotion and love to Jesus leads to profound fulfillment of Scripture. Joseph was not ashamed to be associated with Jesus. And in this act of faithfulness, he was perhaps unknowingly playing a crucial role in God bringing about his plan. That just really stuck out to me this week, that his small act of obedience was part of a much greater part of God's plan. 
I think it also calls us to say and ask, are we willing to say, I'm with Jesus? I think sometimes that's intimidating in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships. But we look at Joseph here and we see, again, a small act of obedience leads to a much more profound part of God's plan coming to be. I want to just encourage us, maybe we could do this in small ways this week, if if this is something that's intimidating to you or doesn't come naturally. Maybe just talk about church tomorrow when someone asks how your weekend went. I think that's a really simple way to just start the conversation and, and open up to saying, this is part of who I am. This is my, my relationship with Jesus is central to my life. Just talk about church. It's a small way that we can associate with Jesus. And in our obedience, we can pray that God would do even greater things. So this Friday, we see then Jesus is buried. Joseph and the women, um, we assume they just go back home. Uh, to Jerusalem for the Sabbath. Well, we, we have other characters, though. We've got the chief priests. So let's check in on them. And we see that the next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So saying the day after the day of preparation is kind of like saying the day after Christmas Eve we opened some presents. It's a really roundabout way of saying on the Sabbath they went and talked to Pilate. So I did some research around the Sabbath, and I actually found that in the Old Testament, there's prohibitions against doing work on the Sabbath. That's me being cheeky. That's your joke for this morning. Um, But it actually is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We see this in Exodus, that it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, the Pharisees know this. Earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 12, one of the big conflicts between the Pharisees and Jesus is Jesus' disciples are walking along a field and they pick some grain out of the field. And the Pharisees say, shame on you, you're not supposed to be doing work on the Sabbath. Jesus interacts with them on this and declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He proves this then by healing someone then on the Sabbath as well. Well, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but the Pharisees here on the Sabbath after Jesus' death have no problem going into Pilate and calling him Lord. It's translated sir here, but it's the same word we'd use elsewhere for Lord. And so they're going in to get some of their dirty work done on the Sabbath. They're calling Jesus the imposter. And ultimately, they're going to go out to the tomb and make sure everything's shipshape so that Jesus' body, they think, won't get stolen away. They get permission from Pilate to set a guard, and they seal it. So this, this is a unique detail here in Matthew. Back in you know, the previous paragraph, we saw this, the tomb is closed. This is actually setting a seal on it, like you would with a, with a letter. You think of like a wax seal. As long as that seal is, is on there, you know that it hasn't been opened. And so we just think of the chief priests and the Pharisees trotting on out to Jesus' tomb on the Sabbath, making sure it's as secure as they can, putting the Roman guard there. And from their point of view, from a human point of view, this is as secure as a tomb could be. It's like you set up a guard of Navy SEALs outside the tomb, and and you think that this will keep anyone out. And again, their plan is they knew what Jesus had prophesied. They knew that Jesus said, after three days, I will rise. And from their point of view, 
They just need to wait this one out until Monday, and this whole thing is behind them. Well, we know where this one goes, um, but that's where we leave things. We've got Jesus' followers back at their homes. We've got the Pharisees thinking that they have the tomb secured. And then it leads us to Easter morning. It's after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day. Now, I, I was thinking this morning, as I got to get up a little extra early, those of us with kids would probably be thinking, there's a joke in here somewhere, I haven't quite figured it out, but that if this had been the you know, daylight savings day, maybe Mary would have gotten there even a little bit earlier because uh, her kids got her up or something. I'm not sure where the joke is. I think I'll figure it out by second service. But Mary and the other Mary, uh, the mother of uh, Joseph, I think, one of the Josephs, um, went out to the tomb. And they knew where it was. They had been there when he was buried. And we see as they get there, there's a great earthquake. Um, and the angel causes the earthquake. Now, why is the angel here? I think it's evident from his words, the angel is not here to wake Jesus up from the dead. The angel is here to bring good news. The angel says this later. He says, he's not dead. He has risen. Um, and so the angel is here for proclamation. Now, I just also love the detail here that the angel sits down on the stone. And I just think about this. Um, in First Peter, it says that the prophets and the angels, um, you know, searched and inquired the scriptures to know the plan that God had revealed, ultimately in Jesus, uh, death and resurrection. And the plan is here now. This is the moment where these angels had known for ages that this was the plan of redemption, and it's here. And this angel gets to come down and be the one to proclaim that to the world. Super cool. Um, and the angel decides, I'm going to take a seat on this rock. I just love it. This angel is, must just be so excited to proclaim this news. And the angel's just sitting on this rock. Take a look at the tomb. It's empty. It's amazing to me. Meanwhile, this angel is checking all of the boxes in Scripture for an angelic appearance. He's radiant and bright, and everyone is afraid, and the Roman guard passes out. But the angel also says to the women we see in verse 5, do not be afraid. And this is always a good sign. When angels come and bring news to God's people and they say, do not be afraid, we know that some good news is following. And this is the best news. The angel says, he is not here for he has risen as he said. So Jesus is fulfilling his own prophecy as he said. Jesus said this. He said that he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise from the dead. And Jesus is doing that. I said this already, but Jesus has already risen. That's the other thing. He, it's not the angel coming and letting Jesus out of the tomb. You see that in some paintings. No, Jesus has already risen, and the angel is here to bring the good news. I love here as well that the angel says, come and take a look. There's the tomb. It's empty. You can look yourselves. I told you, but go look and see. The tomb is empty. And when you've seen it, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples. This is just great. They, they take off running in great joy. And I was thinking about this. Um, sometimes at night, my oldest son will be reading, and he'll knock on his wall because he needs something, either his flashlight's going out or something or another. Um, and one night he knocked, and I come upstairs dutifully. I wanted to be reading too or, or whatever. 
But I get there, I'm like, Matthias, what is it? And he says, Dad, I just read in my science book that we might have humans on Mars by the end of this decade. And I had to tell you right away. <laughs> There's certain news that bears telling right away. And the resurrection is the best example of that. Jesus is risen. His promises are true. And we've got to go tell. The women take off running. They take off with fear and great joy to tell his disciples. But they get interrupted. This is awesome. They're running down the road, and all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And Jesus appears to him, them in his risen body, and the women are the first to see Jesus risen. What's their response? It's worship. They fall at his feet. They take hold of his feet, and they worship him. Jesus is really raised. I don't know if you've watched many movies, but ghosts never have feet. It's kind of weird. Um, but you never really see their feet. But Jesus has feet, real feet that they take hold of and they worship him as the risen Savior. Now this morning, we gathered, we've gathered here, and we sang songs of worship to Jesus. About 2,000 years ago, these two Marys were the very first ones to worship the risen Savior. And I just think that's beautiful. They'd gone out there in, in love to see where he was laid, they got to see that he had been raised from the dead, and when they encountered him, they worship him. Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. That's a beautiful thing. We're going to come back to this more in a little bit. But we've got our other characters in the story. We've got the chief priests. And they find out about this too. The guard goes back into the city. We see that as we continue into verse 11 here. And... Uh, they tell, the guard tells the chief priests and the Pharisees all that had taken place. Now, to this I kind of want to ask, like, like everything? You, you told them everything? Like, you told them about the earthquake that they surely felt in the city as well. It was a great earthquake, the text tells us here. You told them about the, the angel and the stone being rolled away and how the tomb was empty. Like, you told them everything? And we see the response of the Pharisees is completely the opposite of Mary. They deny all these facts. They deny Jesus' resurrection. And it requires kind of doubling down on their plan. Previously, Judas got money to tell the Pharisees what he knew. And here the guards get money to not tell people what they know. This is really quite sad and tragic. We see Israel's leaders who should be waiting for the promised Messiah. And even as this Messiah is risen from the dead, they don't go out and check it out, right? They went out on the Sabbath to make sure the tomb was sealed. They had no problem with that. But on Easter morning, when they're told that there was an earthquake and the tomb was empty, they don't go check it out. This is the final apostasy of these leaders of Israel, in a sense. There's a category that we should have in our minds for people who witness and experience Jesus, who see the evidence of his resurrection and his lordship, but do not respond in trust and worship. 
Something happened at that tomb in Jerusalem, and it requires a response. There's a theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan, who said this, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. His point is that Jesus' resurrection is this central question in all of history. If Christ is risen, then God has given us an answer to our problem of sin and our problem of death. Death is undefeated, except for with Jesus. We talk about how there's two sure things in life, death and taxes. You know, we could also say life has a 100% fatality rate. It's a problem that we all have to be honest about. We can't avoid it. If Christ is risen, then God has given us the answer. That by trusting in Jesus, we can have hope in that. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. It's kind of sad and nihilistic. Um, What hope would we have? There is none. But if Jesus is risen, then death is not the final word. We see two responses from characters to the events of Jesus' resurrection, right? We saw the women. And then we see belief and obedience to go and tell. And we see worship. We see the religious leaders, and their response is denial and deception. They have to double down on maintaining their deception. But I think as many of us encounter this text this morning, you may not feel like you fit into one of those categories perfectly. Maybe you're someone who's learning about Jesus for the first time, or maybe you're a Christian, but you struggle with doubt and uncertainty. I don't think this should be unexpected to us. We swim in cultural waters, I think here in Madison in particular, that say that everything that we should believe should be explained entirely by naturalistic and scientific explanations. That Jesus' miracles and resurrection and even the existence of God, it's considered implausible by many people around us. They want everything to be completely scientifically proven above all else. Now, We're not going to get into here some of the maybe problems with that point of view. Um, But I just want to say this morning that God's not surprised by this. The Bible presents the resurrection as a historical event with evidence deserving of our certainty, but while also being compassionate to those who may doubt. I want to maybe point out a few things about this. Now, there's a a lot of writing around evidences within the text and around the text that Jesus was risen. But one of the main things is that this story is not written to look good, but to tell the truth. The first example in this is that the women are the witnesses. Now, in the context at the time, women were not seen as reliable witnesses. And so if you're writing a story and you want to, you know, make sure that people are going to believe it, that's not how you write it. You write it, that's what really happened. I think another example is that the leaders of the church, who would maybe stand to benefit from this, if we're going to think of it that way, the disciples, they look real bad. They abandon Jesus. They're nowhere to be seen. Um, But these disciples are the ones who eventually took Jesus to the ends of the earth, took the news of his resurrection to the ends of the earth, even to their own deaths. They look real bad here. Is that how you write it? It's not how I write it. And we see in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, the apostles tell people who may doubt, 
Go and talk to the people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus risen. Still within those people's lifetimes, they're saying, go and take a look. See, God's heart here is to draw us in. The tomb wasn't opened on Easter morning to let Jesus out. He didn't need anyone to open the door. The tomb was open to let us see in, to see that Jesus is risen. And as the women are on their way, if they had any doubt in their mind about what happened with that empty tomb, Jesus comes to them. He appears to them, and they touch his feet. Elsewhere in in the other Gospels, we see and hear about Thomas, and he gets so often unfairly called doubting Thomas in, in a negative way, but Thomas just wanted to know for sure. And what is Jesus' response to Thomas? Thomas saying, I I need to touch the wounds. And Jesus came to him and he said, check it out. And my point here is that God's heart is to draw us in. It's compassion on those of us who may doubt. God isn't afraid of your doubts. He calls you to come and look and see the empty tomb. See the risen Savior and believe. I just want to say at the vine, we want to do that too. If you have doubts about walking in your faith, we want to encourage you in that. We want to call you to faith. This is the place in the church where we want you to wrestle with that. I had a professor in college. um, I I was a Bible major in college and went through um, a lot of classes that were kind of taking kind of critical looks, engaging with criticism of the New Testament as a text. And I went through a pretty dark season of faith that way. And I sat down with a professor and talked about it. And what he said to me is, you got to look at Matthew 16 and what Jesus says there to Peter. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the central question of it all. And Peter there was the first to confess, I believe you're the Christ. But we see later, Peter was a denier but he was restored and became a leader in the church. So our doubts can come from a lot of different sources. They can come from competing narratives for our lives. You know, how do we find meaning? What are we devoting our time to? They can come from healthy skepticism or curiosity. They can come as a result of our sin. But whatever the source of our doubts we may have, the question to us from Jesus is the same. It's who do you say that I am? I want to say, despite you know, the doubts that I may have or inconsistencies in living out my faith or anything else, I look on the person of Jesus. We've been just walking with him through Matthew the last couple of years. We see his goodness, his kindness, his holiness, his power, and his authority. And I say, I believe he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we witness his resurrection in this text this morning, That's what we are all called to confess and believe and have hope in. To those who believe in Jesus, here's what God promises. He says, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We get righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins. The problem of our sin and brokenness and its consequences gets a final answer at the cross and the empty grave. It's dealt with. 
The Bible also talks about Jesus' resurrection as first fruits. This is an agricultural metaphor. It's the very first fruits of the year, the first um, you know, harvest from the field. My family, we built um, some garden beds last year. And so then this year, we planted spinach in the spring. Uh, we did a second round this fall. This fall, as it came up, we could tell it wasn't really going to go anywhere. It was, the leaves were small and had splotches on them right away, and we, we haven't eaten any of it. But this spring, the leaves came up, and they were green and beautiful and just grew, and we ate spinach coming out of our ears for like a month and a half straight. You can tell from the first fruits what the whole harvest will look like. And so what the Bible is saying to us there is if we want to know what promise is ours in Jesus on the other side of our grave, we look to Jesus' empty tomb. We look to his risen body. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection that is our promise in Jesus. So in response to the risen Jesus, let's take hold of his feet and worship him. And next week we're going to see, let's go and tell. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life and forgiveness that we have in him. And God, we do pray that you would work in our hearts um, with faith by your spirit, that we would believe and uh, take hold of these promises that are ours. And God, we pray with the, the scriptures that say, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Amen.